Um, last week was Easter Sunday, and we talked about Bonhoeffer. You guys remember that one? What was it? Bonhoeffer. Nobody really remembers. Bonhoeffer, David and Goliath in the Sistine Chapel. Uh, good memories. Um, so today, I figured we, we had to keep with the theme, and so we're doing C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce, and Mary Magdalene. And uh, we get to do something which I've been waiting six and a half years to do, and that's talk about C.S. Lewis's novel, Until uh, We Have Faces. So I've been waiting the whole life of Antioch. And I don't know if you measure Antioch in people years or dog years or church. I don't know what church years would be in that, but it feels like a long time. And we finally get to talk about C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces. So I'm excited about that. But basically, underneath all this, I've been really lately um, doing a lot of reflection on various uh, things from kind of a theological standpoint. So if I get it, the theology underneath something, what does that say about, uh, what does it say about that thing? I'm actually, uh, that's not me doing that with my voice. I'm not that talented. Um, just doing different things. Uh, so one of the areas I've been thinking about is in, in terms of creativity and innovation. It's, it's a really interesting thing when we think about creativity and the ability to innovate and how that connects to the image of God in us. Uh, God is fundamentally creative. God created the whole world. He's a creative being. We're, we're his creation. And so the image of God in us speaks dramatically to this idea of being creative or innovative. And so I, I kind of hooked it this way in my mind that when we're being creative, it's as if we're taking the image of God in us out for a walk. And, and we're exercising and developing the potentiality, the latent potentiality of the image of God in us. I've been thinking about a theology of imagination lately, kind of C.S. Lewis, we've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia at night, um, the, the four girls and myself. And so uh, the whole idea of imagination and fairy tale and fantasy, and, and C.S. Lewis was really big. I mean, he, in some sense, resurrected that genre of literature. And he said, I didn't, just, I didn't write fairy tale because it's what the market needed or wanted. He goes, I wrote fairy tale because it was the best genre for communicating the truth I was trying to relay. So he was saying, listen, this genre of, of fantasy or fairy tale is the best mechanism for really exploring and unearthing truth, the, the, the truth of the story that I'm trying to tell. And so C.S. Lewis once said, uh, all of us, how do you say it? We all grow old enough to begin reading fairy tales once again. And, and he saw fairy tale or fantasy as being a mechanism or a vehicle for truth. And this is a fascinating thing because the first church I worked at had a children's minister um, who prided herself on telling all of the volunteers and all of the parents that this was an imagination-free children's ministry, that there was absolutely nothing in her, her kids' ministry that wasn't rock-solid truth, reality, there, there was no imaginary things. And I remember just thinking like that whole time, like um, C.S. Lewis would have so written you into one of his novels, you know, like as some character. Uh, but for this woman, her worldview said that, that truth is this kind of narrow box and that imagination or fantasy is is leaving the boundaries of truth and, and trafficking outward into nonsense or, or potentially worse, error. And so keeping to just the facts for her was a way of keeping it to truth. Does that make sense? For Lewis, truth was so far beyond the boundaries of just the normal kind of stuff that he, he was arguing we need fantasy and fairy tale to stretch our minds to the full boundary of what really is. Does that make sense? 
that if, if we're just having a straight, concrete conversation, we're never really going to grasp the deep mysteries of the world or the human soul or really have the imagination to get outside of ourselves and empathize with somebody else so that we understand what life is like through their eyes, which is what justice requires, or to kind of look back into the past or look forward into the future or understand what a hope would look like for a heaven that is only cashed out in Scripture in symbolic language. And we need the imagination to be able to wrestle with that truth. So for, for Lewis, getting beyond those boundaries was how we stretched our worldview to actually approximate more truth. And I think there's this amazing theology of the imagination. How do we, like God, um, slowly grow more mature so that our minds are able to grasp things from lots of different perspectives? Does that make sense? God understands things from every perspective. Jesus showed that he knew what was in the human heart. He was acquainted with our sorrows. There's a, a level of knowledge and understanding that Jesus has from all these different angles, and there's, there's a mark of maturity in that. And so as we grow in our imagination and our ability to grasp reality from different angles, we're literally maturing and growing up into the full potential of the image of God in us. Does that make sense? Any, are there any artists? Somebody give me some love. There's an artist that understands the role of imagination. Thank you. Um, and so I've really been exploring this whole idea of what does it mean to grow up into the fullness or realize the image of God in us because we all have it, but it, it lies in, in a state of potentiality that has to be developed as we grow into Christ-likeness. This morning with C.S. Lewis, I want to talk about a theology of love. And I want to talk about what does it mean to grow up into the fullness of the image of God or the fullness of what love looks like in its most mature state. And so, as a little bit of backdrop, let's just dive into some verses here. The first thing we have to understand before getting into theology of love is that God doesn't need our sacrifices. Turn to Hosea chapter 10. We'll, we'll flip through these quick, so if you don't catch up, you can just head straight to the next one, Psalm 40, verse 6. Uh, but Hosea chapter 10 I can't read my own writing. So we're going to go straight to Psalm 40, verse 6. It says the same thing. We're just cutting the chase. Um, Psalm 40, verse 6. My wife's not here this morning, which is good because sometimes I embarrass her. Uh, Psalm 40, verse 6. And we see this echoed kind of all throughout Scripture. But Psalm 40, verse 6. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. Verse 8, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. You do not desire burnt offerings and sin offerings. Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire. Uh, Hebrews was the first one. All right, Hosea is 6.6, 6, so we'll add one verse to this. The fascinating thing about this is in the ancient Near East, so Hosea 6.6 6 says very much the same thing. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. In the ancient Near East, a lot of the cultures that gave animal offerings actually believed that this was, in some sense, providing something for the deity. What we are actually giving food that the deity is going to eat, we're, we're in some sense serving the physical needs, if you, if you will, of that God. Uh, and, and so there was, I think, a temptation for the Israelites to get into the habit of offering these sacrifices. And, and it's as if they're doing their duty and I'm providing for God what God needs. Aren't I being good to him? I'm being so good to God, I'm giving, him, I'm giving him exactly what he needs. 
and then I walk away, and God's like, really? Do you, do you think I needed food? Do you think that's what this is about? I, 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 don't, I don't want you to give me something. I want in your giving for it to change your heart so that you become a giving kind of person. You see, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And I desire acknowledgement of God, um, not these burnt offerings or whatnot. The idea here is I don't need anything from you. C.S. Lewis said there are two, uh, two kinds of love that we normally talk about, gift love and need love. Gift love is the love of a parent to the child. I'm, I'm giving to you. And need love is, is the kind of love a child needs from the parent. I require your love. And, and so when we come to God, it's... God doesn't need anything from us, so it's hard to love God with a gift love, right? And loving God out of our need love is, is, is great, but it's all receiving. So what do we do in terms of really reciprocating that love? And so C.S. Lewis argued that there's a third kind of love, a third kind of love. And he said it's appreciation love. And we all know this, right? When I give you a gift at Christmas, and I labor over it, especially if I labor over it. If I labor over it and I think about who you are and what's really going to surprise you or bring you joy, and I give you that gift, and you go, oh, my gosh, that's like a $100 gift. Quick, let me run to the other room. I'm going to get you something, and I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you back something of equal worth. And, and isn't that great? Now we're fair. That, that would so rob me of the joy of my gift. Do you understand what I'm talking about? What I really want when I give you that gift is your valuing of what it is I'm doing for you, your, your appreciation. This is why I can't stand, um, this is the worst part of Christmas for me when, when it gets to the toy levels with my kids and it's just, they get, they're just, it's just all about the toy and, and their own need, need love or perceived need love and it's like all they see is paper, boxes and toy and there's no, there's no dad in the room, you know? Like there's no, there's no human other than, dad, can you put this together, you know? And, but but I'm, I'm so hungry for, uh, I'm so hungry for, for that one kid that's going to look at me in the eye and say, um, thank you. Like this is so cool. You did this for me. That's what was amazing about that story with Jesus. Jesus heals this group of people and they all run off and only one of them comes back and says, thank you, like thank you for this, this gift that you gave me, I appreciate it. And what God is saying here is, listen, I don't need your stuff. I don't need your duty either. What I really desire is your mercy, that you're a giving person, you reflect the image of God in that, and that as it relates to the gifts that I'm bringing to you, that you just acknowledge it. That you take joy in it so that I can rejoice in your joy and it draws us closer together. I mean, it's a fascinating thing. That's, there's a whole theology of thanksgiving in Scripture. Offer your prayers with thanksgiving. It's a discipline of, of understanding this role of thanking God for all the goodness and beginning to train our minds that it's like, wow, like there's so much here for me to be grateful for. To acknowledge God and not just render sacrifices. So the first part of this whole thing that I'm trying to get at is this. It's, it's that there's not a theology of deficiency with regard to love. The first thing we have to learn about love is it, it's not born out of deficiency, but fullness. If our love is patterned after God's love, then the truest aspect of love is born out of fullness, not deficiency. Does that make sense? So what does that immediately do to our definition of love? It forces us to get beyond thinking in terms of need love, thinking in terms of longings or wants, wishes and desires, my appetites, my, my cravings, what it is I, I, I really, really want. Love, kind of want, but love. And, and joy maybe, but it's, it's all about filling a part of my belly so that I can be complete. And if I can only conceive of love as it relates to completing me, then I'm not fully understanding the, the breadth 
and the width of, or, or is width breadth? Are those the same thing? The extent of, of love um, born out of fullness and sufficiency. So the first thing I, I want to put on the table, or really the dominant thing I want to put on the table here, is that true love is born out of fullness, not deficiency. That's really why I think the formula in Scripture is this. We love because he first loved us. His love, Paul writes in another place, compels us forward because that fullness is what allows us to drive outward and be that kind of mercy-giving, other-centered, sacrificial lover. So just rounding out the definition quickly, um, turn with me, if you will, to John, the book of John, the gospel of John. John chapter 10, we see Jesus talking about what a good shepherd looks like. You see a couple themes crop up here. John chapter 10, verse, verse 11 says this, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You see this, the beginning of this kind of pattern of laying down your life for the sheep. In verse 15, we see the same thing. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. If we turn over to John chapter 15, the passage on the vine and the branches, John chapter 15 and verse 13, one of the great hallmark verses on defining love, it says this, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That he lay down his life. So there's this pattern beginning that, that love is being measured in terms of sacrifice. And in terms of sacrifice that comes out of a fullness, the capacity, the ability to love somebody completely by giving something away that we have. Our physical life or our wants, wishes, and desires. So you see this tension. If love is being defined as, I really love that, I really want that, I really long for that, and love over here is, is I have the capacity to forego. Somebody's in here paying attention. Yeah, I have the ability. Um, sorry, uh, you, can, you can Google forego it, which is an app that the Pensers created uh, where you can forego things and, and uh, it automatically sends money to different things around the world. But when we're defining love is, is what I want to be complete, over here, I have the capacity and the fullness to forego, to give up, to sacrifice something, either fully or, or partially, about my life, about what I have, about the core of my existence, for another person. It's love born out of uh, fullness and sufficiency. And so we get this kind of definition going and saying, wow, there's a mature kind of love here that says it's not about me, it's about what I can render forward in terms of loving. And we see this picked up in 1 John 2. So if you turn over to 1 John, we'll, we'll read real quickly uh, John's other smaller letters. In 1 John 3.16, if you've never kind of memorized that, it's a wonderful little thing to memorize because we all know John 3.16. Well, John, uh, 1 John 3.16, in some sense, is such a completion to that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then you see this other pattern kind of creep up, and it's almost like, for God so loved the world, and then here's the kind of love we have. So it kind of completes what it looks like as it gets passed forward through us. So 1 John 3.16 says this. It says, this is how we know what love is. So this is, this, is, this is our picture of it. This is how we see it clearly and understand it fully. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So we should follow Jesus' example. This is the model. This is the template. And we should lay down our lives for our brothers. Here's how it gets defined. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, 
but with actions and in truth. What do we find when we're talking about love in terms of our wants, wishes, and desires? Our longings? It, it, usually when we're, when we're talking about that, we're doing just that. We're talking, right? When we're talking with our friends, man, I really love that. Or, man, I'd love to have. Or, man, I, I, I so love or want. Or Whenever we talk about love as emotion or need, it usually shows up in our words. And so we get trained that love is, is language, and, and language is love, and so passion and passionate language and language of desire and longing comes in, and so then we translate that over, and it's not what I'm talking about, your needs. Oh, I'd love to be able to help that. I'd love to be able to travel around the world and actually meet the needs of people. I'd love someday to actually have the time to serve other people. I'd love, if I had the money, to actually give, you know? I mean, I don't have the money to give now, so I'm not, but it'd be nice if I had the money someday to actually give or love somebody or to do that fully or, or retire or have all this. So it's, it's, it's funny how love gets so enveloped in our language when we're thinking about our emotional states and our desires. And what it ends up doing is saying, I love something or I want something I love, and then my love for you becomes more about my love of me loving you. I'd love to give someday. Meaning, sure would feel good if I was a giving person. I'd love to serve and, and give time to that. Because I'd love to feel like I was a role model. And that other people could look to me as an example of what a, a person of character and maturity and, and a civic individual is like. I'd love to, you see what I'm saying? Love now becomes really more a narrative about me. And, and we're right back to that weird thing where, where, where now a theology of love is not born out of sufficiency, but out of deficiency. So here's where we get to C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, more than anybody else, certainly from a conceptual standpoint, more than anybody else has taught me about love. I mean, remarkable the things that, that you can pick up in a couple of Lewis's books, and we're going to look at two today, on love. And the first one is The Great Divorce, which was just a, that's where I got Grand Canyon. It just seemed like a cool way of saying Great Divorce that was cryptic. So we're not going to talk about The Grand Canyon. It's The Great Divorce. Um, the Great Divorce is the book that I recommend to people when people say, where do I start with C.S. Lewis? Everyone makes the mistake of starting with mere Christianity. And unless you're a really good reader with a high comprehension level or you're very motivated, it's not the right place to start with C.S. Lewis. You'll bog down and then you'll quit. And then you'll feel like a quitter and then you'll hate C.S. Lewis because every time you think of C.S. Lewis, it reminds you that you're a failure. Um, <laughs> so start with The Great Divorce it's a fictional tale. It's this kind of look at what it would look like, these people going to heaven, and, or, and they're kind of on the outskirts of heaven. They're these kind of ghosts, these souls on the outskirts of heaven. If you read the preface, because everyone that doesn't read the preface comes to me halfway through the book, and they're like, C.S. Lewis believes in purgatory. I'm like, you didn't read the preface, did you? And they're like, no. I'm like, it's a fiction book. Read the preface and, and get yourself oriented. Now, C.S. Lewis uh, had some amazing writings where he contemplated uh, where the Protestants, he goes, Protestants don't believe in the Catholic version of purgatory. He goes, but I don't see in Protestant literature any kind of understanding or articulation of, of how we get cleaned up, which is a fascinating question. And what Lewis is basically saying is, look, when you're muddy and you're outside and you come inside, he goes, whether it takes a long time or only like the twinkling of an eye, somehow you got to get cleaned up. And he says, if we show up at heaven and, and our sins and, and we're, we're coming along and, and we've got all our muck and we're going to be judged and all that and then Jesus is going to let us in, somehow there's this process of, of us changing into a, a different kind of person than we are now, where we do things wrong, a glorified person. 
where, where sanctification gets its full measure all the way, where we go from a person being sanctified to a person being fully glorified. And he says, I don't care if it, it's a twinkling of an eye or if it's a process. He says, but Protestants don't seem to think about this idea that somehow we've got to get cleaned up, which shows you a little bit about the Protestant mindset. We think we're all clean already, which is a problem, Okay. But so read The Great Divorce. It's a great place to start with, with C.S. Lewis. And there, there are two specific passages, um, one of a wife and one of a mother. And, and C.S. Lewis is not picking on women here, but he's using those relationships to show how sometimes love can masquerade differently. What, what, what we think is love is really just something else masquerading as love. So this particular one the book is a bunch of, it, it's, it's a, his spin-off of the Divine Comedy by Dante where they go through the, the levels of purgatory and there's a Virgil, there's this kind of mentor figure um, walking alongside and kind of tr- teaching this person. So C.S. Lewis has this soul who's kind of walking through and being taught and mentored as he sees these different kind of conversations between angels and these souls, these ghosts, these, these wisps. And George MacDonald is the mentor because uh, the literary figure that's kind of going along with this person because that was C.S. Lewis's um, literary mentor, the person C.S. Lewis read to, to, to stretch his imagination. And so we, we come up on this story and um, we, hear, we hear a woman and it says this, that is quite, quite out of the question, said a female ghost, to one of the bright women. I should not dream of staying if I'm expected to meet Robert. Robert was her husband. I'm ready to forgive him, of course, but anything more is quite impossible. How he comes to be here, well, but that's your affair. But if you have forgiven him, said the other, surely I forgave him as a Christian, said the ghost, but there are some things one can never forget. But I don't understand, began the she-spirit. Exactly, said the ghost with a little laugh. You never did. You always thought Robert could do no wrong. I know. Please don't interrupt me for one moment. You haven't the faintest conception of what I went through with your dear Robert. The ingratitude. It was I who made a man of him, sacrificed my whole life to him. And what was my reward? Absolute, utter selfishness. No, but listen. He was pottering along on about 600 a year when I married him. And mark my words, Hilda, he'd have been in that position to the day of his death if it hadn't been for me. It was I who had to drive him every step of the way. He hadn't a spark of ambition. It was like trying to lift a sack of coal. I had to positively nag him to take on that extra work in the other department, though it was really the beginning of everything for him. The laziness of men. He said, if you please, he couldn't work more than 13 hours a day, as if I weren't working far longer, for my day's work wasn't over when when his was. I had to keep him going all evening, if you understand what I mean. If he'd had his way, he'd have just sat in an armchair and sulked when dinner was over. It was I who had to draw him out of himself and brighten him up and make conversation. With no help from him, of course, sometimes he didn't even listen. As I said to him, I should have thought good manners, if nothing else, He seemed to have forgotten that I was a lady even if I had married him. And all the time I was working my fingers to the bone for him and without the slightest appreciation. She continues on like this all the way to the end of the chapter and then says this. And yet, I don't know. I believe I have changed my mind. I'll make them a fair offer, Hilda. I will not meet him if it means just meeting him and no more. But if I'm given a free hand, I'll take charge of him again I will take up my burden once more but I must have a free hand with all the time one would have here I believe I could still make something of him somewhere quiet to ourselves wouldn't that be a good plan he's not fit to be on his own you know put me in charge of him he wants firm handling I know him better than you do what's that no give him to me do you hear don't consult him just give him to me I'm his wife aren't I I was only beginning. There's lots, lots, lots of things I still want to do with him. No, listen, Hilda. Please, please. I'm so miserable. I must have someone to, to do things to. It's simply frightful down there. And then she kind of goes on. And I read this particular passage because 
one of the ways love hides itself is under control. One of the ways love hides itself, um, no, I'm sorry, one of the ways control hides itself is under the umbrella of love. One of the ways control hides itself is when it masquerades as love. Does that make sense? We see in so many different ways and places that we think we're loving somebody by controlling somebody. We're not giving our life truly to them for them. We're really filling a need of ours in our control of them and manipulation of them. We do this, by the way, with charity. It's a really interesting thing. Sometimes we get into the position where we love charity so much because we love to be the giver. And we're so much more into us as the giver and them as the receiver that we miss the full dignity of love that says, I'm going to take myself so out of the equation that you find equality in this relationship even though you have a greater financial need than I do. You're made in the image of God. You have gifts. You have relationality. You have full equality with me. You have so much you can offer to this relationship even if I happen to have more resources than you do. And so we like to, to sometimes keep the equation like this, rather than allowing the other person the full dignity to join us. We use phrases, and I've done this before, like, I want to be a voice to the voiceless. That's great, but what about working so that the voiceless can gain their own voice? We talk about um, you, you feed a man a fish, you feed him for a day, you teach him how to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. And so then we really want to get in and fix people and teach them how to fish. And all the while, we miss what John Perkins, kind of the godfather of community development in America, um, says is, is the third part, um, helping them own a piece of the pond. So don't just give them a fish. Don't just teach them to fish. Dignify and invest enough to help him own a share of the pond so that you're not always in control of the dynamic or the power structure or the relationship. And so do we love people enough to really elevate them even if it means that we're no longer superior to them? But there's a, an aspect in which we don't like to give up control but yet think we're loving somebody. And there's, there's something about true love, the other, in sacrificing for the other, that we have to be willing to give up control or make it about them, not about our having to, to, to have somebody to do something to. Does that make sense? So the, um, the best lesson, however, on love comes from C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces. C.S. Lewis wrote this book towards the end of his life when he was married to Joy Davidson. Uh, it was his favorite book. His first favorite book was Paralandra, the first of the Space Trilogy. And then later in life when he wrote Till We Have Faces, that became his favorite book. And if you talk to most C.S. Lewis scholars, it's their favorite C.S. Lewis book. It's by far my favorite C.S. Lewis book. It, it seems like a normal book. And you're like, why is this so amazing? Until you get to the end. And you realize that C.S. Lewis has been setting you up the whole time and then gives you a lesson on love and the deceptiveness of the human heart that you could have never imagined somebody could understand with that level of depth. Okay? So I, I normally don't um, spoil it for people because reading the end is kind of like spoiling, but you guys have had six and a half years. I've given you plenty of time. And, uh, and so it's your own fault. Um, but we're going we're gonna to now spoil the book for you. And this is going to take some time. So this is now um, story time. This is, this is, re this is reading time. You, you, you all are my children now um, for a brief moment, no matter what your age is, and, uh, and we're going to do story time. Uh, this story, Till We Have Faces, originally called Barefaced, uh, was a story that Lewis had kind of played with in his mind for a long time. It's a retelling of the, the myth of Cupid and Psyche. And the myth of Cupid and Psyche is this idea that Psyche goes off, gets married to a god who, whose face she can never see in an imaginary palace that no one else can see. And the sister comes along and says, you need to look at the face, you need to hold the lantern up um, because no god would really be a god if you can't see the god or, or you're just making this all up. And, and sure enough, in doing that, 
the, the, the banishment comes in, the punishment for, for looking at the face. And this is something G.K. Chesterton, I love, talks about with um, fairy tales. He says, he says, fairy tales teach us an absolute moral standard. He goes, it's, it's, it's more true to the universe than any other kind of genre of literature. Chesterton says, listen, you go through it, and the pumpkin, uh, the coach will turn to a pumpkin at midnight, period. And you can't argue with it. You know, you, you look at the face of the God and you get banished. You open the box and all hell breaks loose. That in, in these fairy tales, that there is an absolute ethic and standard that, that is so true to the way the universe really works that there are crazy things that whether we like them or not are the rules by which we have to live if we're going to understand or find life within this kind of narrative that God has created. And so there's something fascinating about it. But so Lewis was wanting to get at the bottom of this and, and tell the story. So what he finally does is he sets this story in kind of an ancient, on the outskirts of Greece, land called Gloam. And Gloam is a little less civilized than, than like the Greeks. And you get these two sisters. And Oriole is the one and Psyche is the other. And Oriole, and, and they have their father, the king, and Oriole is an ugly, ugly person. She just has a very ugly face. Her sister Psyche is one of those angelic beings, perfect beings. Like, um, I have a daughter that, that reminds me of Psyche, uh, one of my daughters. All the, just, just blessed and has never had a bad day in her life. And everybody loves this person immediately. And they bring life and healing into the room when they come. And this is what Psyche's like. And there's a uh, kind of a, uh, everyone praises this Psyche. And there's this, all of a sudden, this sickness comes into the land. And Psyche, like a Florence Nightingale, is going through and healing the people and touching the people and, and it, it kind of nursing her people back. And they begin to worship her and praise her. And the, the priests in the land of this god called Ungit. And Ungit was very ancient kind of religion. It's this stone fall, uh, that fell from the heavens that's in this temple. And, it, and it, it's these kind of priests that are the scary kind of priests, um, creepy kind of priests. And these priests begin to get threatened by the way that everybody is, is talking about Psyche. And so what they do is they go and they blame her for all of this. The gods are angry because the people are worshiping her. And so they talk the king into believing that this will not leave the land until we sacrifice her to the god of the mountain, which is the son of Ungit. Ungit's like the mother. And until we sacrifice her to the god of the mountain. So sure enough, the king's going to do this. And they go sacrifice uh, Psyche by 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 putting her there and walking away. And what ends up happening, like the myth, is Psyche gets married to the god of the mountain. Invisible palace, can never, is not ever allowed to look at his face, and she is very happy. And after a while, um, Oriole goes to find her sister. She's the older sister and has that older sister maybe vibe and very strict, and she wants to know what became of her sister. She goes up, she finds her sister happy, and it offends her. She's deeply envious that her sister is so happy. And she begins to feel like her sister was stolen from her. And so she wants her sister to kind of go unmask this God and, and look at it and to see for herself that it's all just make-believe in her head. And her sister refuses to, but finally relents because of the goodness of her character to submit to her older sister. But in doing so, she ends up getting banished. So the story moves along. Oriole's father dies. She becomes the queen. She has her old tutor, the fox, who is a Greek, which you got to love, right? C.S. Lewis. So this Greek that had been captured in battle long before, this wise kind of tutor, this Greek, he's named the fox, you know, because he's wise, right? And so the fox was her tutor, and he dies, and the king dies, and Oriole has learned to veil her face. And in veiling her face, she takes on a degree of power and covers her ugliness. 
And she becomes now the head of the state. And so you've got Ungit and the priests, and, and she's now the ruler of this religion. And, and she fights, literally fights a battle and slays um, somebody else and becomes the warrior queen. And she institutes reforms, and she's got this adept hand at, at administering affairs. And she's got this right-hand man, very loyal, named Bardia. And Bardia is a family man, but he's, he's a soldier's soldier, and he's dutiful, and he's loyal, and he's alongside her and helping reform this whole thing. And then she gets older, and one day she hears the end of the story of Cupid and Psyche, and how Psyche has had to miserably wander, always miserable because she was banished from, um, from her husband. And she gets angry, and she's like, really, that's the story? That, that it's about the sister of Psyche that was envious that caused all this. That's not the story. The story is the gods were, were at fault for this. The gods did this to her. And she goes, you know what? I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to write my complaint against the gods. And so she says, before I die, I will write my story. My version of the story. How great I was. How much I loved this. And how the gods stole her, Psyche, from me. And so she begins to write her story, and that's kind of how the book begins, is her writing her story. Then her story ends, and all of a sudden, it breaks to kind of a book two that's very short. And she goes, things have started to change. I've had these visions, but I'm old now. I don't have time to rewrite my book, and my fear is that, that I won't be able to put these down before I die. So all of a sudden, she writes about these visions, and it began when she went to the home when Bardia dies. She went to the home to console Bardia's wife. And she had always been so jealous of Bardia's wife that, that had this man that, she, that was so amazing. She goes to the home and she gets a totally different story. Bardia's wife is bitter. She never had her husband. Her husband was never there. And when he was there, he came home a, a broken and tired and fatigued man who had used all of his greatest strength and all of his greatest energy and service to the kingdom and, and to this queen. And she begins to see a different side that, that what she had really done was to selfishly take from Bardia. And instead of being a true friend and loving him, what she was really doing was using him to fill her own deficiency and need. And then C.S. Lewis does something masterful. And we see this story of a dream. She goes to bed one night, and her father comes, and he's very harsh with her, and he, he grabs her, and she goes to put on her veil, and he says, no, leave that thing behind. And she leaves it behind. He drags her through the castle, and they come to the throne room where there's this big mirror, which is a very rare thing in those days. It was this kind of prized possession, this mirror. And she gets dragged by her father in this dream down to this mirror, and when they get there, he holds her in front of the mirror with her face and puts her there, and he asks her this question. Who is Ungit, said he, still holding my hand. Um, I'll pick it up just a little bit before that. Then he led me across the floor and a long way off. Before we came to it, I saw that the mirror on the wall, just where it had always been, at the sight of it, my terror increased, and I fought with all my strength not to go on. But his hand had grown very big now, and it was as soft and clinging, as bad as arms, who was her nursemaid one day. Or as the tough clay we had been digging, or as the dough of a huge loaf, I was not so much dragged as sucked along till he stood right in front of the mirror. And in it I saw him, looking as he had looked that other day when he led me to the mirror long ago. But my face was the face of Ungit, as I had seen it that day in her house. Who is Ungit? asked the king. I am Ungit. And you, you realize in this moment that C.S. Lewis had been using language all along for, for Ungit. You, you go into the temple of Ungit and he uses language like the stench of holiness. Um, and he sets Ungit up as this devouring God that only devours things. And the priests who serve Ungit are the agents by which kind of Ungit devours things. And so this God Ungit and this holiness, this, this idea of holiness and, and power and authority is all about devouring things. And so she walks 
and, and is put in front of the mirror without her veil, standing now barefaced, true to form, and realizes, I am Ungit. And that's a fascinating thing. The book would be amazing if it ended there. Um, but I'm going to read you a very long section that is the most masterful piece of literature ever. It is so good that I need to tell you how good it is before I read it. Um, but so the final vision is, um, is what I'll read. And, and so I think I've given you enough context that will make sense. So hopefully um, you guys will be able to follow the story. But you have to put, we have to put ourselves in this story if we understand what Lewis is really trying to do. We have to put ourselves in the story and understand that our voice, often like this voice, is a, is a voice that's hidden from us. So here it goes. 285. Somebody's good. Wow. It's a really smart church. Smart people. <laughs> I had only one comfort left me. The band has no idea how long I'm going to be reading. They re I, I meant I'm going to be reading for a long time. I had only one comfort left me. However, I might have devoured Bardia. I had at least loved Psyche, truly. There, if nowhere else, I had the right of it, and the gods were in the wrong. And as a prisoner in a dungeon or a sick man on his bed makes much of any little shred of pleasure he still has, so I made much of this. And one day, when my work had been very wearisome, I took this book as soon as I was free, and I went out into the garden to comfort myself and gorge myself with comfort by reading over how I had cared for Psyche and taught her and tried to save her and wounded myself for her sake. What followed was certainly vision and no dream, for it came upon me before I sat down or enrolled the book. I walked into the vision with my bodily eyes wide open. I was walking over burning sands, carrying an empty bowl. I knew well what I had to do. I must find the spring that rises from the river that flows in the deadlands and fill it with the water of death and bring it back without spilling a drop and give it to Ungit. For in this vision, it was not I who was Ungit. I was Ungit, Ungit's slave or prisoner. And if I did all the tasks she set me, perhaps she would let me go free. So I walked in the dry sand up to my ankles, white with sand in my middle, my throat rough with sand, unmitigated noon above me, and the sun so high that I had no shadow. And I longed for the water of death, for however bitter it was, it must surely be cold coming from the sunless country. I walked for a hundred years, but at last the desert ended at the foot of some great mountains, crags and pinnacles, and rotting cliffs that no one could climb. Rocks were loosened and fell from the heights all the time, their booming and clanging as they bounced from one jag to another, and the thud when they fell on the sand were the only sounds there. Looking at the waste of rock, I first thought it empty, and that what flickered over its hot surface was the shadows of clouds. But there were no clouds. Then I saw what it really was. Those mountains were alive with innumerable serpents and scorpions that scuttled and slithered over them continually. The place was a huge torture chamber, but the instruments were all living, and I knew that the well I was looking for rose in the very heart of these mountains. I can never get up, said I. I sat upon the sand gazing up at them till I felt as if the flesh would be burned off my bones. And then at last there came a shadow. Oh, mercy of the gods, could it be a cloud? And I looked up at the sky and was nearly blinded for the sun was still straight above my head. It had come, it seemed, into the country where the day never passes. Yet at last, though the terrible light seemed to bore through my eyeballs into my brain, I saw something, black against the blue, but far too small for a cloud. Then by its circlings I knew it to be a bird, then it wheeled and came lower, and at last was plainly an eagle, but an eagle from the gods, far greater than those of the highlands and fars. It lighted on the sand and looked at me. Its face was a little like the old priest's, but it was not he. It was a divine creature. Woman, it said, who are you? Oriole, queen of gloam, said I. Then it is not you that I was sent to help. What is, it, what is the role that you carry in your hands? I now saw with great dismay that what I had been carrying all this time was not a bowl, but a book. This ruined everything. It is my complaint against the gods, said I. The eagle clapped his wings and lifted his head and cried out with a loud voice, She's come at last. 
Here is the woman who has a complaint against the gods. And immediately a hundred echoes roared from the face of the mountain. Here is the woman, a complaint against the gods. Plaint against the gods. Come, said the eagle. Where, said I? Come into court. Your case is to be heard. And he called aloud once more, she's come, she's come. Then from every crack and hole in the mountains there came out dark things like men so that there was a crowd of them all around me before I could fly. They seized on me and hustled me and passed me, passed me on from one to another, each shouting towards the mountain face. Here she comes, here's the woman. And voices, as it seemed, from within the mountain answered them. Bring her in, bring her into court, her case is to be heard. I was dragged and pushed and sometimes lifted up among the rocks till at last a great black hole yawned before me. Bring her in. The court waits, came the voices. And with a sudden shock of cold, I was hurried in out of the burning sunlight into the dark inwards of the mountain. And then further and further in, always in haste, always passed from hand to hand, and always with that din of shouts, here she is, she's come at last, to the judge, to the judge. And then the voices changed and grew quieter. And now it was, let her go, make her stand up, silence in the court, silence for her complaint. I was free now from all their hands, alone as I thought in silent darkness. Then a sort of gray light came. I stood on a platform or a pillar of rock in a cave so great that I could see neither the sides nor the roof of it. All round me, below me, up to the very edges of the stone I stood on, there surged a sort of unquiet darkness. But soon my eyes grew able to see, see things in the half-light, and the darkness was alive. It was a great assembly, all staring upon me, and I lifted on my perch above their heads, Never in peace or war have I seen so vast a concourse. There were tens of thousands of them, all silent, every face watching me. Among them I saw Bada, and the king my father, and the fox and Argon. They were all ghosts. In my foolishness I had not thought before how many dead there must be. The faces, one above the other, for the place was shaped that way, rose and rose and receded in the grayness, till the very thought of counting, not the faces, that would be madness, but the mere ranks of them was tormenting. The endless place was packed full as it could hold. The court had met. But on the same level with me, though far away, sat the judge. Male or female, who could say? Its face was veiled. It was covered from crown to toe in sweepy black. Uncover her, said the judge. Hands came from behind me and tore off my veil. After it, every rag I had on. The old crone with her ungut face stood naked before those countless gazers. No thread to cover me. No bowl in my hand to hold the water of death, only my book. Read your complaint, said the judge. I looked at the roll in my hand and saw at once that it was not the book I had written. It couldn't be. It was far too small and too old, a little shabby, crumpled thing, nothing like my great book that I'd worked on all day, day after day, while Bardia was dying. I thought I would fling it down and trample on it. I'd tell them some, someone had stolen my complaint, and slipped this thing into my hand instead. Yet I found myself unrolling it. It was written all over inside, but the hand was not like mine. It was all a vile scribble, each stroke mean and yet savage, like the snarl in my father's voice, like the ruinous faces one could make out in the ungut stone. A great terror and loathing came over me. I said to myself, whatever they do to me, I will never read out of this stuff. Give me back my book. But already I heard myself reading it. And what I read out was like this. I know what you'll say. You'll say the real gods are not at all like Ungit, and that I was shown a real god in the house of a real god and ought to know it. Hypocrites, I do know it, as if that would heal my wounds. I could have endured it if you were things like Ungit and the shadow brute. You know well that I never really began to hate you until Psyche began talking of her palace and her lover and her husband. Why did you lie to me? You said a brute would devour her. Well, why didn't it? I'd have wept for her and buried what was left and built her a tomb. And, and, but to steal her love from me? Can it be that you really don't understand? Do you think we mortals will find you gods easier to bear if you're beautiful? I tell you that if that's true, we'll find you a, a thousand times worse. For then I know what beauty does. You'll lure and entice. You'll leave us nothing, nothing that's worth our keeping or your taking. Those we love best, whoever's most worth loving, those are the very ones you'll pick out. Oh, I can see it happening, age after age, and growing worse and worse the more you reveal your beauty. The son turning his back on the mother and the bride on her groom, stolen away by this everlasting calling, calling, calling of the gods, taken where we cannot follow. 
It would be far better for us if you were foul and ravening. We'd rather you drank their blood than stole their hearts. We'd rather you, they were ours and dead than yours and made immortal. But to steal her love from me, to make her see things I couldn't see, oh, you'll say, you've been whispering it to me these 40 years, that I'd signs enough her palace was real. Could have known the truth if I'd wanted. But how could I want to know it? Tell me that. The girl was mine. What right had you to steal her away into your dreadful heights? You'll say I was jealous. Jealous of Psyche? Not while she was mine. If you'd gone the other way to work, if it was my eyes you had opened, you'd soon have, have seen how I would have shown her and told her and taught her and led her up to my level. But to hear a chit of a girl who had or ought to have had no thought in her head that I had not put there, setting up for a seer and a prophetess, and next thing, to a goddess. How could anyone endure it? That's why I say it makes no difference whether you're fair or foul, that there should be gods at all. There's our misery and bitter wrong. There's no room for you and us in the same world. You're a tree in whose shadow we cannot thrive. We want to be our own. I was my own, and Psyche was mine, and no one else had any right to her. Oh, you'll say you took her away into bliss, and joy such as I could never have given her, and I ought to have been glad of it for her sake. Why? What should I care for some horrible new happiness which I hadn't given her and which separated her from me? Do you think I wanted her to be happy that way? It would have been better if I'd seen the brute tear her in pieces before my eyes. You stole her to make her happy, did you? Why, every wheedling, smiling, catfoot rogue who lures away another man's wife or slave or dog might say the same, dog. Now, that's very much to the purpose. I'll thank you to let me feed my own. It needed no tidbits from your table. Did you ever remember whose girl was she? She was mine. Mine. Do you not know what the word means? Mine. You're thieves, seducers. That's my wrong. I'll not complain, not now, that you're blood drinkers and man eaters. I'm past that. Enough, said the judge. There I was. Utter silence all around me. And now for the first time I knew what I had been doing. While I was reading, it had once and again seemed strange to me that the reading took so long, for the book was a small one. Now I knew that I had been reading it over and over, perhaps a dozen times, and I would have read it forever, quick as I could, starting the first word again almost before the last was out of my mouth, if the judge had not stopped me. And the voice I read it in was strange to my ears. There was given to me a certainty that this, at last, was my real voice. There was silence in the dark assembly long enough for me to have read my book out yet again, and at last the judge spoke. Are you answered? He said. Yes, said I. Lewis, by the way, like you've not yet lived if you've not read that a couple times over. Um, Lewis shows us how easily it is for what we call love to really be a veil for our own selfish wants or desires. And that when we don't get what it is we want or feel we need or think we need, need or, uh, or desire, that there is a human instinct or reaction to claim the purity of our motives and in doing so to challenge the purity of God's decisions and actions and decrees by claiming the purity of our conception of how things ought to be we then put God on the defense put him in the dock to where he has to justify why such an um, unjust thing would be happening to us and what we realize I think in the end is that we start our thoughts 
and our desires naturally from the inside out. And it's very difficult for us to stand outside of ourselves and to look at ourselves and to be able to, with an open hand, say the world doesn't revolve around me and it's not all about me getting my way or even having what I think is fair, but it's about me recognizing the purity of God's motives and decrees and actions, even if I don't understand them. And to stand next to God saying, God, in this situation, how do I move forward? In this situation, how do I continue on? In this situation, give me some kind of strength, some kind of love to continue to go forward with you, even though I'm wounded. So instead of challenging God in our woundedness and saying you have to answer for yourself, God, if I'm going to claim you to be a loving God, we, we say I, I am not going to understand everything and it doesn't revolve around me and your ways are higher than my ways. And so in my weakness, in my brokenness, find me, God, and help me move forward. I, I partly because of this book, a long time, disciplined myself to ask the question, what next? Like, I, I, I can whine with the best of them, right? I mean, a little bit of sleep deprivation, a little bit of kids being too noisy, a little bit of things happening the way they shouldn't go or people not doing what they should do, and we can all whine, right? But I've disciplined myself not to say, why God, but to say, what's next, God? And in that, I find God as my comforter and the one who's going to provide strength, even though faith is foggy and confusing, um, as the one that I can anchor into and help move me forward. But when we stand here accusing the gods, we can stand there for 40 years shaking our fist at God. We can stand there 40 years playing the tapes over and over and over in, in our minds, writing a book against the gods about how great we are and how awful he is because of what happened. And so at some point, we have to be able to get outside and recognize that the, the true voice in which we're doing that is not the voice of purity and love. It's the voice of pain. It's a, it's a child, child's voice. It's a true voice, but it's a voice we have to recognize not as the one that stands above God seeking to judge God or challenge God, but the one that is really just confused that needs to turn God into the comforter that he is, not the accused that he's not. So where I get Mary Magdalene at the end of this whole story is this. At the end of John, Mary Magdalene, who Jesus drove demons out of. Crazy story. I don't think I've ever had demons driven out of me. I've tried to imagine it once, like, wow, that'd be trippy. But Mary Magdalene, who had had many demons driven out of her on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, she goes to the tomb, verse 11. The disciples went back to her home, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they have put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to my Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. There's an amazing picture here. Jesus is crucified. People that have put their whole lives at risk, giving, 
given everything to follow Jesus, are denying him like Peter, are sitting afraid in rooms wondering what the Romans or the, the chief priests are going to do next. They're hedging bets and trying to figure out how to, how to maneuver forward. There's a lot of self-pity going on and there's a lot of complaint going on and there's a lot of, oh no, God failed us going on. But you see something different in Mary. Mary is not at all questioning God. She's searching for her Lord. She's wanting to be with him. There's no challenge in her voice. And in her tears and in her waiting upon the Lord, Jesus honors her by coming to her first and bringing his love. And I think something, C.S. Lewis, the great Grand Canyon and Mary Magdalene, I think there's something when we realize a theology of the fullness and sufficiency that we have that allows us to love as God loves, that we can find something so beautiful in our relationship with God and come at life from such a different, radically different perspective. Amen? We got, um, we're like, I, re- I didn't know how long it was going to take to read that. We're like five minutes over, but I think it'll be okay. We're going to do uh, the offering in just a minute and do special music. Um, and maybe you can just pray through this time that God would help you be authentic with your voice, that you might find him there, ready to love you forward as you go. Father, we commit this day to you, this church to you, our lives to you, and our loves to you. Take our love, grow it, nurture it, make it more like yours, and please expose whatever areas where we're shaking our fist at you. Help us stop doing that, whether it's complaining about money or the fact that we're still single or whatever is going on in our life that is causing us to challenge you. Please, Lord, help us release our fists and come to you in our confusion. I pray that in Jesus' name.